to BDSM Reimagined. I'm Indy, and <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> I forgot what our intro is. This is season two, Indy. We can't, uh, no, no errors in our intros anymore. Go again. Three. But wait a minute. Am I just saying I'm Indy and then we're talking about this today? All right, and then okay. I go, I'm Michael and then I... All right. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, Welcome three. Welcome back to BDSM Reimagined. I am Indy. And I am the Michael. <laughs> Is that what you are today? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How is everyone? We can't hear them. <laughs> <laughs> What's that you say? <laughs> Have you been, Indy? Oh, very well. Yes. I'm looking forward to discussing today's episode. I'm raring to go. Back up. You said you were very well. Now, off air, I know that that's <laughs> very opposite. So get rid of the script. It's a complete <laughs> lie. <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, we'll get into our episode. And to do that, Indy, I have been wondering. I've been reflecting. It's a very healthy mm. part of the, the human psyche to reflect. And I've been wondering, what's your history like with crushes? Have you ever had a crush on someone? Where you've been just so like, Urgh. yes, okay. I've had, I've had several, but the one that really comes to mind was this guy. Oh, it just oh. became, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying, yeah, because we're trying to think of that that time when we've really just li- liked someone and it's obsessive. So, I had this crush on this guy. I was working at a university and I had this very senior job. I was very, very busy as well. Mm. I'm talking starting way early in the morning and then oftentimes we wouldn't leave until midnight, Mm. close to midnight. The reason was it was a startup and there was a whole lot going on and so I was the senior with a lot of responsibility. This is not sounding like a crushed story, is it? It's sounding no. like a miserable. Sounds like you're a crushed person. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's when I was walking, working opposite this, this guy who was younger than me, about 10 years younger than me. And he was attractive. I was like, Oh yeah, he's quite cute. And the, the obsessive crush really started to burn with fire when he made me laugh. Oh. He was funny. He'd joke around. He'd be playful. He'd leave random notes on my desk with. So he once left this statue of a, a monkey on my desk and we'd been speaking a lot about the Simpsons. I don't know if anyone knows that episode where there's a, there's a monkey on a typewriter. Anyway, so it was just, (laughs) he was this beacon of light in my day. I would otherwise be staring at a screen, have a hundred million people asking me questions, emails, everything that was just serious. And then he would pop in. It was the worst of times. It was the blurst of times. Is that the line? That's it. Yeah, that's Exactly. (laughs) It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. (laughs) You stupid monkey. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. All right. So that was my biggest crush. What about you, Michael? I, uh, I've had a few. They're powerful stuff, aren't they? Uh, really intense feelings. And, uh, I, I really fell for a guy. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, which is very much my type. It's the unattainable for me, that kind of type. And I draw that conclusion because when I was in, uh, high school, secondary school, there was this guy who had blue hair, blue, blue hair, <laughs> <laughs> blue eyes, blonde hair, and he used to tease me a lot. And I just envied him. But what was so annoying was that he was really good looking. And I just thought, wow, if only I would ever be allowed to come near him. Like, this is like, it's so forbidden because, oh, I don't know. But from then onwards, I just always liked blonde hair, blue eye. And I, oh, it was a long story, but I ended up finding as such the, the you know, the perfect guy. And it was crazy. He was in a relationship, actually. And it was this very intense period of my morals versus my my passions. I remember long conversations with you oh about God. this guy. You went for th- about three years. Endless. Yeah. Endless. It was a long time. <laughs> All right, turn it down. And, <laughs> no, I remember it went for about three years, and I actually <laughs> hope he's not listening. Part of the reason I moved <sighs> to London was for him. Can you believe that? It just sounds like a true love story or something. It's gorgeous. Oh, it was anything but. <laughs> <laughs> no, it had that feeling tone of true love. And actually part of what made it so intense and what gave it such magnetism was because we weren't actually in much contact with each other. It was all based on very limited contact, very limited conversation. This is in the, we, we met for about six months and he moved and I was obsessed for like the year or two years after that and I moved. But that all happened because I didn't actually know much about him or his life. But then we actually, uh, when I came to London, a year later, me still thinking about him all the time, we actually ended up dating and he brought up my, my obsessive side to him and <laughs> we, we laughed about it. It was, it was pretty funny, but I think he was mature enough. When we dated, I was just like, what is this the hell? That, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> since, since we're referencing movies and, and, and animations, it's in that, it's in that movie, Roe Michelle's High School Reunion, where that, unpopular woman she sees sandy frank and sandy frank comes out of the helicopter and she's like that's sandy frank what the hell was i thinking (laughs) (laughs) he's a lovely guy and he's beautiful but when we actually got to know each other it didn't it didn't work out that's the point very diplomatic of you michael thank you very very nice (laughs) and that's it for today's episode (laughs) (laughs) so something that we're drawing on here is the phenomenon of limerence. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what that is, Michael? I can't actually, indeed, because before this episode, I've never <laughs> heard the word. And yeah, <laughs> it was only in our bit of a notes before uh, discussing you, you, you brought it up. So I think it's best if you take All the right. lead. All right. Well, yes. Yeah, so, well, this is something that I've, I've become familiar with in the last years of my practice as a psychologist because I do get clients coming in when they're in this state of obsession about someone. And yeah, limerence is essentially it's a prolonged state of being infatuated or obsessed with another person. I'm I'm just going by a, a definition online here. 
So it's typically experienced by a strong desire for this other person and uh, it can be very intrusive. It can feel like you're just compelled to think about them and you're really hoping that there is reciprocation from the other person when you're in this state. Now, something that I haven't really found on line or in terms of definitions that I, th I think this is it's somewhat limited is that an important characteristic of limerence is that what we're attracted to is often parts of ourselves that we either can't access or we haven't cultivated. So what I mean by that is when I was talking before about this crush I had, when I was this serious manager, I had no space or time or room for anything fun. And so what I was really attracted to was that promise of something in my life that I just didn't have. I put onto him a projection of this fun beacon of light, great, funny, joyful presence because it was so lacking in my own life. So very importantly, limerence is, it's almost two things. It's this obsessive need to have this person and want them to want us as well. But then it's also really about, it's, a, it's holding a mirror back to us. It's reflecting what am I attracted to exactly about this person and what's that telling me about myself? It's so funny you say that because now, as we're saying that, Indy, when I was thinking back to, to this guy, I'm going to call him Daniel. Uh, we were in a pub. Everyone was drinking. And I, I was like, oh, I don't really drink. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm scared of it. <laughs> <You're> scared? <laughs> I don't know why. I, I had a little problems at that, that time, about 25. And we're in the pub and the crowd parted. He turned around to this blonde haired, blue eyed god beautiful body, beautiful face. And he's first thing he said to me was you get a beer, God damn it. Something like that in the, in that tone. And I was like, <gasps> that, and it was those characteristics of this is important. It's getting a beer and you do it now. And it was embedded in that the, the visual that, that blonde hair, blue eye format. So I really resonate with what you mean. And he, he, he possessed, that assertiveness, that, that social, um, flame quality, which was just, wow, this guy is a leader. Yes. And he sounds quite dull. So I can see why he would be of interest to you. He is a massive bottom actually in the end, but <laughs> <laughs> appear, he appeared dominant, but also he touched on that childhood quote bully. Who was like, you do this now, or rah, rah, rah. That's what I think was familiar about his first words to me. And something important that you did mention about this crush is that you didn't really have a lot of contact with him. There were snippets, there were little bits of conversation, there were massive time periods in between. And so if we start to bring this into the BDSM world, if we're looking at the dynamic between dominance and submissives, there's something very similar going on. When I'm playing the dominant, I'm someone who is only a particular part of myself in role. And so there's a massive scope for this limerence to kick in. Because you, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I as a sub, are amplifying 
those certain qualities of dominance, of, of assertiveness, of kindness or servitude as a sub. You're amplifying those, those qualities and they're, they're becoming concre- more concrete in the dom form you take with the leather, the foot on the chair, the voice. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so as the dominant, there are very tangible symbols of my dominance. When I am in conversation with a submissive, the tone of my voice, if I'm using language online, the very direct, brutal sometimes language that I use, insulting language. And those other Mm -hmm. things you mentioned, like leather, these are all symbols of my dominance. Can you give an example of the brutal stuff you say? What do you want, fuckface? (laughs) Fuckface. I just said that to someone today. They messaged me saying, goddess, and I said, what do you want, fuckface? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) And that's the initial response I am giving to someone. That's the first contact that they're having with me. And it's irrespective of who they are. They might be a CEO. They might be a nurse or someone, and you don't give a shit who they are. And that's the way that they're received. And that is some way relieving, especially when, when you're speaking about when you were in that senior role where you had a lot of responsibility, you had a lot of people looking up to you for what it, it must be a relief where just someone says, you know what, boom, and just gives you something where they don't care who you are, what you're doing. You, you know, it must be quite a relief in that way. And the thing is that that's such a common form of greeting that you get from either the Dom or the sub. Mm. There's a lot of scope in these interactions for limerence to just take off. Because, and I really like the example we're using of Daniel, your crush. You only had little bits of interaction. There was a lot of time in between where you could make up a whole lot, project a whole lot onto him. And with my crush as well, let's call him Nathaniel. With Nathaniel. <laughs> is he in the 16th century? Is he wearing a tunic? <laughs> Does he cast spells? <laughs> Actually, that's probably typecasting him really well. <laughs> a computer nerd. Uh, yeah, well, he was, anyway. So Nathaniel, so Nathaniel would be a little pocket of three minutes in my day. And then I, I was also moving from office to office, so I might not see him for a few days or a week, whatever. Yeah. And importantly for me, I can only speak for myself here, that I was feeling quite miserable in this job. And so he, he was this promise of things could be better if I was with him, specifically because he's funny and I'm lacking humour in my life. And we can't underestimate that condition of mystery. Mystery is the source of so much anxiety, of so much intensity, of so much excitement. When I'm messaging a chav or a dom online and I get limited responses and I don't know when they're going to reply next and I don't see many pictures but just enough, that creates a whole persona, a whole image of who this person could be. And then my ideas and projections start to bounce in this echo chamber and becomes louder and louder. I think, oh my God, they're really amazing because they, they're not replying yet and they don't even care that I'm responding or wow, they're saying these really mean things and they just, and it's, 
That mystery, we cannot underestimate that enough. It is one of the key ingredients to cultivating this dom-sub dynamic, at least in the initial stages. Without that, it, do it doesn't work. And actually, with Daniel and Nathaniel, when we got to know them, the mystery had all sort of melted away. And I was, as I said, I was just like, no, not at all. This guy's not for me. I really like how you said all of that, Michael. Uh, I think the mystery is a huge part of it. And I think what happens is that we get, we're getting drawn to almost archetypes. These people online are representing something which is deeply familiar to us. It's quite common for lots of us as young children saying, oh, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a nurse, I want to be a football player, I want to be a firefighter. And I think what those things represent are archetypes. The football player is a warrior. The nurse is a carer. The teacher is the wise man. And it's something deeply, deeply recognized in us that we recognize these sorts of values. And people are drawn to that. So when I go online, I see a dom. It actually happened uh, the other day. I messaged this uh, Chav by Chav, which is kind of even better because, you know, straight men have that that magnetism to them for me. So so for you, they symbolize something, isn't it? That they, they have yeah. a masculinity that you, yeah. And I say uh, to him, oh, I love Chav's man. Don't know why. He says, probably because Chav's are real men. And I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I say, I agree, sir. And I don't even have to think too much about it. And what I'm saying there is like, yep, yeah, this, this is instinctual for me. And when I say instinct, I mean, if we're relating back to the archetypes, this is something deeply familiar with me, and I don't exactly know why. I don't know exactly why the teacher archetype represents the sage archetype, but I know it relates. I don't know why the football represents the warrior archetype, but I know there's a connection. So when he says, I'm a chav, and I say, yes, I agree, and I don't have to think too much about it, it means, yep, yeah, this is, this is, deeply primal. Yeah, and some of the archetypes as well that you might think of that are a bit outside of this are, like you said, the nurse. We can think of them as the caretaker. Uh, these these kinds of things that are just obvious associations we don't have to think about too much. That's mm. what you're meaning, is it? Yeah, like the modern day forms of the archetype, modern day language that we use for, for ancient archetypes, like witch doctors, shamans, mm. those kind of things, warlocks, witches, they're all sort of Throughout history, the language has changed, but the, the, the value system that, that underpins them has stayed the same. If you're a teacher, a, a low resolution, quick way to see that is a person who gives passes on knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. And so they're like a sage. Yeah. He then asks if I've always been a sub. I say yes. He asks if I like public stuff. So then he goes on to wanting to be worshiped in public. He gives an example of grabbing me by the neck and spitting my mouth in front of everyone. And I'm like, whoa, such manliness. I'd never have the balls to that, I say. And I'm sort of emasculating myself here because I have the sense that I'm not a real man, quote. And I say to him, that's probably why you're a real man. And he's like, yes, definitely. Makes sense. So he's really, in terms of limerence, he's really feeding me those conditions. He's giving me the exact input, the exact words I want to hear, 
which feeds this projection, which is so deeply arousing, erotic, and also sticky. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I think as I'm hearing you speak, I'm just thinking about how it's almost like we have this set of unmet needs or things that we'd really like. And then a dom or a sub comes along and they're like some of the jigsaw pieces in a jigsaw. And because of that mystery, because there's only only little parts of them that we're getting to see, for you, those doms that you're most attracted to, you've already mentioned things like chav. Okay, that's one jigsaw puzzle piece. Then also that he's by another big jigsaw puzzle piece. And so he's starting to complete this picture and you're then projecting all of the rest onto him of this jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. That's what it's sounding like. And it happens so quickly and it becomes frightening because it just promises so much. And that's that projection you were saying that just fills the space up. And then my mind will cover any imperfections that might be showing themselves in the text or the way he says something. Because that limerence is so strong, any sort of part of him that suggests something different, I, I ignore. Mm. Yeah, it's like if there's another jigsaw puzzle piece that belongs to another jigsaw, you just sort of like, oh, no, this one doesn't belong here. Yeah. And dismiss. Yeah. Another last jigsaw piece here, which I'll, I'll say and then I'll finish, is he talks about, because he's by he believes for him that he needs to reproduce and that's his main function and why that was particularly attractive at this point of the conversation. And if I, if I think about it for, for a bit longer is because that idea that we serve the strongest in the pack, the alpha in the pack, we help them to reproduce and they move on. That's an incredibly old primal animalistic way of thinking. You have many animals that serve the leader so they can reproduce and move on. So this is speaking to me in such a deep level that it's just so activating. Mm. But when I think about it and get to know him, the illusion starts to dissolve. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it gets more intense. It's only, I think, after a number of meets in person that you really start to see uh, that that this won't, this, this isn't sustainable. And even if it does continue, what I found is that other parts of you need more than this primitive connection. Yeah. And I think it's similar to what we were talking about with our crushes when we really got to know Daniel and Nathaniel. <laughs> I can't believe they rhyme. Uh, yeah, it, it, all, all of that mystery, that beautiful half-done jigsaw puzzle that kept us so captivated all fell away and we're, we're left with what? Yeah. So tell me as a dom, because it's quite easy as a sub to classify the caricatures that I'm attracted to, the jock, the bear, the alpha. I think dominants really have clear, simple examples. As a dom, is there an archetype or is there a particular set of qualities that you're attracted to? Absolutely, Michael. I think you're really asking a good question there, that it's both of those things. It's the qualities and the archetypes. So starting with the particular qualities, I specifically look for in a submissive that he is a fully obedient, well, he, 
initially. That's that's one thing that's specific. Although I am open to female slaves. But I do look for men. I look for fully obedient men. I do not like brats at all. If someone is a another thing that's very, very specific is that if someone says that they're kinky and they're a switch and that they are sometimes into dom, sometimes into sub, again, I'm like, nah, don't like it. I just want someone who's a fully obedient, complete submissive. So ideally, these are the some of, some of the particular specific qualities I'm looking for. Mm. Now, what all that points to for me is a slave who is able to really, really surrender. That displays to me that it's someone who I know I can play with who will be able to really surrender over to my desires, my commands, my wishes. And that's what's attracting me. So on an archetypal level, we can go into the biblical where, for example, someone like Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not Christian myself, but it's a really good instance of the archetypal figure where a lot of us are aware of is if you think about Jesus Christ, he was someone who was completely surrendering. He was a compassionate figure who took upon our sins and our transgressions physically by being beaten up and put onto a cross and crucified. So there's this, in this idea of Jesus and humanity, the humanity that comes across to him is flawed and evil and deluded and cruel. And what does Jesus do? He, he just accepts it all. He surrenders and he's, he's supremely compassionate. He's, he's able to hold all of those parts of humanity. Well, he surrenders to the greater process, doesn't he? He takes on all the inflictions. He takes on all the, the sadistic kind of thoughts and behaviors that you, you hold in you, which we all hold in us, but you have a particular liking to it. He sort of holds all of that and accepts it in some ways for the greater good. And I think. I wonder if the greater good is what, I mean, I know as a sub, when I think of a dom, I think they're the greater good. So I think there's some crossover there. Yeah, definitely. There is. And I think that that's what I think about with the the surrendering of the slave is that they're surrendering to something that is the greater good. If it was just to surrendering to the the more mundane, difficult qualities in a human, I, that would be terrible. It's more, yeah, the greater good, some kind of transcendental, otherness yeah but i think for doms they don't think of it like that doms don't want their sub to go to the greater good of you know altruistic helping other people i think the greater good in in, and correct me if i'm wrong in doms psychology is them like you indeed you're the greater good that doms want to that you want your subs to lean to you're taking that whole journey and you're taking that sort of omniscient role as yes I am the dominant, I am the mistress, I am the highness, and I am the greater good that you should lean towards. So I think what, what I hear you say is that you are looking for subs that have those tendencies and qualities of those surrendering, compassionate archetypal forms. Correct. Hmm. Yeah. And what I want to bring this back to is if I think to back to Nathaniel, he was this fun when I had no fun in my life. And I think that when I reflect on, because I've been reflecting 
as part of preparing for this episode, when I reflect on what it is about the submissive and, and their qualities, what is it pointing back to me that I'm lacking, is it's a sense anyway that I am someone who really likes to be in control and be the boss. I enjoy that. And a submissive is not only saying, yeah, sure, they're loving it and I'm divine for it. So it's a place in which I can be that part of myself that otherwise, you know, if if I'm in a group of people, I want to be the leader. I've got to hold back. Uh, you know, as just one example of some of the, the ways that this dynamic helps bring about those parts of myself. Yeah, I think BDSM is definitely a, a container. It's a stage where people can play those roles and take those parts. I think what's interesting, and this is a little detour, is that in BDSM, it seems to be human focused. And when we're speaking, I'm, I'm quite reminded of, uh, we're, we're actually touching on some of Plato's ideas about absolute beauty. And Plato thought that human relationships will never, inevitably crumble. And when you are with a partner, you need to look at the qualities inside of them because they're pointing to a greater beauty that exists in the heavens. And therefore you begin to fall in love with the qualities, not the human. And then the qualities will uh, enable you to be a better person, but also to live um, a better, more healthy, sustainable life. But I think in the secular age we live in, and we've criticized almost any sort of religious frameworks, we look to each other to fill those deeper desires and deeper needs of wanting to revere surrender, worship. We're looking at each other to do that. And in my experience, I, Dom's humanness always gets in the way. Either they get sick or they don't feel the dominant on that day, or I don't feel submissive on that day, uh, or they get lose interest where you can see how Plato's view is that, well, the, the gods will never, because they're your imagination, they never will quote fail you in a sense. So I think that's something just to add there. And I'll add a link to the bottom on our webpage just to in a discussion about Plato's perfect forms as well. Mm, I think that's a really relevant point and it's good that you're bringing that in. Because archetypes are transcendental. They're not, they're not humans represent them, but they're not actually them. And what I noticed in the BDSM world for me is I am looking for those archetypes which we look for in every single day life but i'm only finding people having fun and i'm having fun pretending posturing those roles because i think we don't have them anywhere else anymore it's it's just us yeah and i think that when you strip away religion or any of these archetypal forms that you can access then it's left to be human by human and when I think about my clinical practice, the types of presentations I see in terms of relationships, a lot of the issues that come up are all about limerence. It's all about projecting onto someone else all of these things that we, you know, I, I go back to the jigsaw thing. You know, as human beings, we have this, it's almost like this inbuilt sense that we want to build this picture of greatness and beauty. So when you're trying to do that with a partner who's, at, at first, this deep mystery, but then you, you know, what happens is there's disappointment and then a wrestling with the realities of the humanness of the other. Yeah. 
I think it would be wrong for people to think then, oh, okay, the answer is to not get caught up in this. Limerence is, if I'm heading into limerence, if I'm heading into infatuation, that I'm doing something wrong. For me, I really want to stress that it's about accepting that that's the kind of creature we are. We will end up being infatuated. We will end up having crushes. We will end up falling into limerence. And it's about really just seeing it for what it is and enjoying it with practice, not necessarily said, I mean, I moved country <laughs> with practice. It's about not being too attached to it and overly identifying with it. Yeah, definitely. I think the awareness really helps when you're in it. So when you're in the limerence and you're in that obsessive state and you just can't think of anyone else but this person and you really want them to message you back and you want them to reciprocate and there's this really yearning. I think that what's helped me subsequent to Nathaniel, I've had other crushes and once I, I got to understand limerence in this way, it's really helped me to have compassion for myself. It's, it's like, of course, yeah. It makes sense that I'm attracted this, to this person because they have this quality that I'm what, – what it's actually done for me is I've worked with it really well. I'll say, okay, the mirror that this guy's holding up to me is that I don't have enough fun in my life. It's often the men that, are, that I'm attracted to are these fun-loving men. And so it's a reminder, okay, get back into some of the things that I really enjoy in my own life. Cultivate the, you know, go and do a games night with friends and go to that theatre sports event because you really love them. Mm. So I don't put it all onto this other person because it's so unsustainable. And so it's actually a really skillful way to manage the limerence is if you really just look at, okay, what is the mirror reflection? How do I work with that? And then you can feel more empowered and more in control or whatever else you'd want to say when you're in that limerence state where it just feels so so contingent on the other. I think what's helpful is that it then becomes, okay, no, actually I can go and do this for myself. As well as being contingent on the other as well. Yeah, because I guess you're still in that state of limerence. Yeah. So it's going to be there. So accepting it's there and working with it in a way that helps as skillfully as possible by seeing what you can do for yourself. Mm. Thank you, Indy. It's been a nice discussion. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Michael. Listeners, if you have any questions, any comments, please do not be afraid to contact us. You can do it on the Anchor website or our own website, which will be given to you at the end of the show. Until then, take care. Take care, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, if you would like to find out more, you can through our website, bdsmreimagine.com. Take care.